With traffic, errands, and parking, cars can be a chore. But a great car can be an adventure, a getaway, and a prized possession. Whatever your budget or family require, there's a car out there you'll love. We're here to help you find it. I'm Todd. I'm Paul. And this is the Everyday Driver Car Debate. I say we dive right in to the topic Tuesday. We haven't done this in a long yeah, time. It's, it's always been sort of news and things up front, and mm-hmm. here's what's mm-hmm. going on with the show. But let's dive right in to the topic Tuesday that we've got from Jeff Rideout, who wrote to us a couple months ago, mm-hmm. asking about, is exceeding the limits the only way to find them? Mm. I thought that was was really interesting, having come off a recent track episode that yes, you and I did. Yes. That was pretty much all about finding the limits. Yeah, it was. It was for sure. Now, the, the SCCA thing that we did, it's actually coming for Season 7. Yes, we're already shooting Season 7. Season 6 is on Vimeo, by the way. It is it is processing through Amazon. All of the episodes will be there. Seven episodes of both places, which is very exciting. We're already shooting Season 7. That first episode was you and I doing a race licensing school. Mm-hmm. Another one of those adventures you and I do because you, the audience, can do it. Exactly right. So we yes. went to this race licensing school, and they actually had a section of that licensing school where they wanted us to do threshold break. Mm-hmm. And they essentially it was just, actually really cool. It was very cool. They designated a section of the track where they just said, "We want you to come down that section of the track at speed," which you and I took to heart. Come down at speed. <laughs> the cameras proved this. Bury yes. the brakes. <laughs> essentially, make things lock up and see what the car does. Mm-hmm. That was the that was the task. And it was funny because they also told us that a lot of times when they ask this question, people don't. They don't come in fast and they don't lock the brakes. So I, I think they're having the same conversation with you they're having with me, which is just kind of like, all right, well, you took us seriously. Exactly. I was like, exactly. hey, I'm coming in hot. I'm in top gear and I'm going to throw it down and see what it does. Well, Jeff, you know what was so informative is because these Spec Racer Fords do not have anti-lock brakes. They do not have traction control. They don't have any nannies whatsoever. They are as pure and stripped away as race cars get. They're small race cars, but they're indeed race cars. And they just have brakes, an engine, a, sh- a shifter, and a steering wheel. That's mm-hmm. it. And so you can find the limits very easily without you know a lot of stuff intruding, and you got to yeah. turn all this yeah, yeah. and that off on your car. So Jeff writes to us and says, suppose I'm a track newbie with a rear-wheel drive car, which I'm not, but a fellow can dream. <laughs> we agree. So he gives us two options. He says, is it better to gradually go faster over time, cautiously approaching the limits of the car but never exceeding them, or... Should you go out and spin the car on day one so you know exactly where the limits are and then, you know, you would have experienced the wet your pants terror of a high speed spin and then you wouldn't spend your life worrying about what that feels like. Interesting so these are the variables. Two yeah. He said in grade six, he wrote, read a book called Shift Cart Racer or something like that. He said the kid had to go through the rite of passage of going into the tire wall before he could be considered a real racer and get on with his racing career. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And he mentioned he saw where we got the tail out in the Alpha 4C, I think it was, on the yeah. mountain road and mid-engines and mountains. It had a tendency to be a little bit tail-happy. Yeah, yeah you yeah. think. You on get the side on of that the cliff, it's pretty fun. Yeah. A little bit of gravel on the road. Yes. It's like ball bearings. What could possibly go wrong? Hmm. It's going to be great. Sweet. Lots. There's so many good thoughts here. And you're right. Coming off that race school, I was struck again by something. And you guys will see this in the episode, and it's very fun. Paul and I do not drive the same. <laughs> and what's interesting <laughs> is, though, when we both get up to speed... We're almost equally fast, Which but is we're attacking so things differently, yeah. and we will trade off, and you'll see it in the piece, we will trade off who's faster based on where we are on the track, because one of us has gotten more comfortable on a certain part of the track than the other one, and so we trade off. What I also notice, and you and I have talked about this before, Paul, I am a cautious stepper. 
I think you throw yourself in much sooner than I do. You think so? I think you do. I, think, I feel like I, I work up to things. Well, I, I, think, I think you still advance, but I think you initially throw it in harder, faster than I do. And I think I take some real laps and slowly in building. And I want to speak to the spin thing real quickly. <laughs> Todd works up to it. I spin the car immediately. There's your answer, Jeff. Exactly. exactly. Which one are you? <laughs> are you on. blue or red? No, but, but here, here's the other thing about it that I, that I want to speak to. I think that the spin right away thing creates more problems. And I'm not saying okay. that going out and throwing yourself at it hardcore is necessarily the wrong approach because I think, like you proved, Paul, you keep advancing. Even though I think you start at a higher pushing level I mean, than I do, you keep advancing. Ideally, absolutely, the idea for any racer Hopefully. to keep doing that. Right? But I don't think the answer is ever on a track. Go out and see if you can get it wrong right away. I, and here's why I say yeah, that: I yeah. think if you go out and you go way too fast right away, and you do something wrong and you spin the car or you exceed the limits, now you've A, scared yourself, B, proven that the car actually has limits, and C, you have no idea why. Mm-hmm. You just were so hair on fire right away. And, and, and here's the other thing we've seen. Sometimes in instruction situations, guys, we're much more prone to do this than women. It's that whole, I got this factor. Of course. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to be super duper fast because I got this. And now you're in the tire wall. And the truth is you don't know why. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you start building, this is my opinion only, but if, as you start building, what happens is you start to see how the fact that you were breaking a little bit later in this corner this time, how did that change everything else going on? Or I'm accelerating earlier through that corner. How does that change everything else that's going on? So then as you're, as you're changing a variable at a time, when it goes wrong, you know what you did wrong. I like that. Well, Jeff, a lot of thoughts are in my head right now. Let's take it to the very top and talk about Formula One. And tire blankets. Because at this race school, on one of the races, somebody went off because of cold tires. Now, we were racing in the morning, and we didn't get warm-up laps. Yep. I mean, we got a few warm-up laps, I guess. But it wasn't like we were out there in the middle of a hot day. You're and absolutely we were, right. Yeah. You know, had actual tire blankets to keep heat in the tires. And the best way, the instructors told us, yeah, you can jerk the wheel and swerve back and forth. But really, the whole reason racers do that is to clean the tires. They're not really putting a whole lot of heat. The only way you can really get heat into a race car is fast laps. That's Mm -hmm. about the only way you can do it. So he said what they're really doing is cleaning the tires and keeping them clean for maximum grip when you do take off. And he said some of the more experienced racers actually go to the parts of the track that are not on the line where all the the rubber collects, all the marbles, all the Mm -hmm. grip or the grit and, you know, stuff on the track. And they want to feel what that part of the track feels like. Mm-hmm. Now, on the parade laps, you're going slow enough, and so they're going back and forth, and you're just you're over there feeling that part of the track that isn't the race line. Yeah, yeah obviously yeah. the race line is where they're the the most grip is available. But you're you're swerving back and forth, just keeping your tires clean. But we didn't have the benefit of tire blankets, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on the very first race, green flag dropped, and somebody went off on the first lap. Yep, so yep. as experience comes, you're going to think, all right, in this situation. Am I a pro racer? Do I have the heat in my tires on the first lap? I can't take everybody at the first corner like they do in Formula One. You're, yeah, yeah. We're yeah. not no, – we're nowhere close to that level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what can you do to know this about yourself and start to know the car as you're coming into races? And that's, that's the mark of an experienced driver. You kind of know, all right, my first laps are going to be cold tires. Mm-hmm. I need to get some heat in the tires and the mm-hmm. brakes, and I need to get the car warmed up and all this stuff. That's just sort of knowing yourself and knowing the car, and that's a one bit of advanced 
thing that you can bring as a racer. Sure, sure. But then past that, I like what you were saying, Todd, about you know not going out and finding the edges because you'll you'll know on various corners at what point to add throttle or brake and what makes you faster or slower on one of the particular corners at Thunderhill, there's turn three. Mm -hmm. Every part of you wants to lift because it's an off camber right turn. And you think the car can't hang on to this. Mm -hmm. I need to lift Mm -hmm. and back off. And therefore you think, all right, if the car's in neutral, theoretically it should have more grip, which is the exact opposite of what you want to do. (laughs) <laughs> and all I found all day long was, all right, I had to tell myself each time I came to that corner, mm-hmm. every lap I came around, I was like, downshift, Paul, I'm talking yourself through, do it now, add power now, it sounds crazy and scary, the car's going to hang on, trust your tires, mm-hmm. and it did. Mm-hmm. And I, it's a, a foreign feeling. Yeah. So until you're at that point, and then you know, okay, if I come at that same speed next time around and I lift, I know I'm going to go backwards. Off the track. Mm. So it's that's kind of ties into what you're talking about as far as incrementally moving up to certain portions of the track. And you know, you know, all right, now that we've got a baseline, the car's hot, the tires are hot, the day's hot. Great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now let's try, you know, some various things. And you're starting to feel, well, well, can I take that two miles an hour faster? Can I jump on the gas earlier? Can I take that corner exit speed a little yeah. bit sooner? Yeah, yeah. That's when you've got a, a, a standard, a baseline of... You know, everything's warm, the car's warmed up, mm-hmm. and now let's try that out. Because if you introduce cold tires on a cold morning and it's kind of wet, all bets are off. Welcome you're to introducing too many variables yeah, yeah, yeah. to be able to go find those incremental limits. Well, the other thing I find, and we found this at this track school, we found it at HPDEs, which is High Performance Driving Days, you, you, any of these kind of events, what you'll find is you'll find people that are genuinely very fast. Mm-hmm genuinely faster than you they may have a similar car to you they may have in some cases a lesser car than you most people not all most people that are very fast on the track are willing to share i agree so what happens here everything instead of you instead of you going out and going well i'm just going to see how fast i can go you can have conversations with them about okay what's your speed through there or or where are you on the gas Mm -hmm. And, and what i find when i get in these conversations is i'll realize oh, that person's braking a lot later and I know their car's heavier mm-hmm. or they're on the gas that early. I didn't think you'd get on the gas that early without causing issues. Now, look, everybody's car's a little bit different, but you start to get baselines of, oh, this thing I'm not trying should be possible, which right. is a different right. headspace than just going, well, giving it a shot. There's tire walls. I'll be okay. Right. So what happens right. is now you can start kind of going, okay, so if that thing I'm not achieving, if that's 100%, I'm back here at 80 I need to try to at least, from my own comfort level, step up a bit, see if I can find a little more. And now you can start to feel what your car is doing differently. So one of the things we talked about at this recent race school was if you are turning the wheel in the middle of a corner and the car is no longer responding, there's no more turning available. Mm. You can be right on the – there's there's a corner at Thunderhill that's a full 180. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if you yeah. take it at different speeds, if, if you're going too slow, you can turn the wheel and the car dives in more. But when you find the edge of it, you turn the wheel and the car goes, I don't care. <laughs> right. I, 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 there is no more turning currently available here. <laughs> right. And I had another corner at Thunder Hill that when things got really warm, I would take that corner at about 70 plus miles an hour. Right. Already side slipping. Right. Right. All four wheels are sliding as I'm taking the corner with speed. There's not 
much more there at that point. And, but it's not yeah. like I tried that first lap ever, even on the, the the races that were quick. Once we finally got the heat in the tires, it was like late in the day when everything warmed up. Now I've gotten to that place. Exactly right. But that exactly was probably right. five to ten miles an hour faster in that corner than I was doing when we started the weekend. Because it was that slow climb of, okay, so that worked. I can duck in a little more. Oh, I didn't know I could do it that fast. That's interesting. And just incremental. Well, that's why I think you should wait until those all those things are mm-hmm. one-to-one. Because if you if you spin the car beforehand, somebody could say, well, the, it was cold in the morning and there was you know some frost on the track or it was a little bit cold or your tires were cold or something. Well, of course you spun. That doesn't tell you anything about the car. Mm-hmm. You need to get a baseline going. So if you try the same either heroic move or idiot move the next time and you know you figure out okay the car doesn't like that and it spins or mm-hmm. next time you know what i could have added throttle there and the car actually is settled mm-hmm. i'm not going to spin or to prevent a spin i'm right at the threshold i know that if you can add a little bit of power great that that's wonderful that's a discovery mm-hmm. but if you know you can't turn or adding more throttle because then you know you'll spin well there's a threshold right there. Yeah, I think it's all of those, finding those little variables that you change one thing and you see what the car does. Because the throw it in, you've changed everything and you have no idea what since you're wrong. Right. You've got to almost strip it away, get everything equal, and then kind of go after that one thing on that one corner to find it. And I also think if you are a person that track drives, get a GoPro. Put a yeah, camera in absolutely. your car because absolutely. the thing that I find... And it's happened multiple times to me. My recollection of what I did that didn't work isn't 100% correct. Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. think I did this with the brakes and then this with the steering wheel. But when I watch it back, I'm like, no, I did them at the same time. Or I did them in the opposite order. I'm right about the pieces, but I didn't get the timing in my memory correct. And so you can learn that mm-hmm. way too. There's yeah. there's a couple of things that happened on this this Thunderhill. Uh, I'm already selling this episode like crazy. A couple of things that happened on that where when I looked at it back on camera, I was like, oh. Oh, I actually see the variable that caused the problem. Right. I didn't realize right. that that was the moment that did it. But you were doing it based on the feeling and your comfortability of speed totally. and your knowledge and your skill and all that I stuff. Think, I think this happened and the camera yeah. goes, yeah, but you didn't take into account this variable. It's very interesting yeah. how much the camera can help. Well, so we've only been talking about track driving up to now, Jeff, and I know that you're really focused on track to exceed limits. We don't suggest exceeding limits, really anything outside of a track, and even then – you know, Todd and I are always in somebody else's car. We're either in a borrowed car, we're in a press car, we're in somebody else's race car. Mm-hmm. And so we're always cognizant of, all right. I have to give this you back. Know, <laughs> we, we do have to give this back at some point. This car doesn't belong to us. And especially on canyon roads mm-hmm. and when we're we're driving press cars, most of the time, you know, we're not on closed roads. Yeah. And yeah. so we don't want to go find the limits on a particular tire. We want to drive it enthusiastically, hard and fast and with purpose, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like enthusiast drivers do. Yeah. That yeah, tells sure. us enough information to give feedback into a video review and say, yeah. all right, here's what that feels like. I don't have to go right up to the edge of 10 tenths because, you know what? On a public road, variables happen even more so than a track. A yeah. track is yeah, yeah. pretty controlled in that sense for sure yeah, and yeah. and they the whole point is to be able to control the variables as much mm-hmm. as possible but somebody walks out from their house a piece of gravel that wasn't there <laughs> now is oh look there's a deer <laughs> yeah all those variables happen yeah. and you do not want to be able to you know experience that you don't know don't want to find that out so we never do that we're we're driving with purpose 
briskly, I will say. Yes, briskly. Briskly is good, yes. But we're never at, you know, we're, we're never above eight-tenths on a public road. We're, we're always trying to leave some because of the unknown variables. If you leave some, then you can, you can correct. Yes, ideally. And, and I'll also say this. Going off the road, in, let's say on a track, like Thunderhill, by the way, there's nothing to hit, right? <laughs> some some tracks well, you'll I mean, th- some tracks you'll find a yeah. tire wall. Th- Thunderhill, you had to go searching. Okay, mostly you're and I've done it. You're in well, somebody else's farm. If watch you do that. watch my spec Raider Sir Ford piece. We just were just testing that car. Watch me go spinning through the field and laughing about it because I realize as soon as it's really going off and not coming back, there's nothing to hit, and I'm a long I'm a passenger at that right, point. Right. Okay, so even though a lot of tracks are that way, the truth is. You don't really want to go off in your own car. No. Because no. now you have to pay for the stuff that got broken. Yeah, yeah. All the stuff that got damaged when you went off is now your responsibility. So let's ease. I, I think the better point is to ease your way in. But there's always more speed out there, though. That's the other thing I think is fascinating. Which is amazing to think because, you you know, midway through the school, we're thinking, all right, I'm extracting as much as I can out of this thing. Mm-hmm. And then somebody passes you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How did they do that quarter better yeah. than I am? You know, there's always something to learn, and and it's very humbling. Mm-hmm. It's you know somebody is always going to be better than you, and they're going to be better than you on the corner you think you've dialed, and they're going to yeah. do it faster and better, and then they're going to pass you on the outside. And, there was there was a guy at the better. race school that came around the outside Sorry. of the honestly the only corner on the track where I thought there's no grip to go on the outside, and at one point during the middle of a race, it was like. You're even with me on the outside. <laughs> I was so impressed with him. Yeah, that was insane. So yes, you want to you want to feel those limits, but you want to do it when you know you can identify what caused that limit, what caused that incident or that spin. Because an instructor would come back and ask you. They would. You're That's right. That's the zen-like thing about track driving and mm-hmm, drift instruction mm-hmm. is. They'll ask you, you think, you come back and say, okay, so what did I do wrong? And they said, you tell me. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And then you rewind and you think, well, shoot, that was like a, you know, social construct zen-like moment to get me to tell you. (laughs) And then you kind of come up with it and they said, well, don't you think you did this, this, and this? And you think back and you thought, yeah, I I guess I did. Why did I do that? It's because you were thinking about this corner differently than, you know, or whatever that is. And and when it's revelatory like that, that's when the learning happens, which is so fun. And that's Mm -hmm. what Todd and I experienced. I think you and I found new places in ourselves. Uh, Yeah, it was, it was a fantastic event. It was a fantastic challenge and the actual wheel to wheel stuff and people spinning in front of you or spinning in front of people and all of the above was quite an adventure, and I'm really glad we did it. So write to us your Topic Tuesday, your car debates, your car conclusions, which you are. Keep those coming. Really appreciate it. The emails are great. They're hilarious. They're fun. We try to get to them as many as we can, of course. And the Topic Tuesdays are always interesting, just to sit around and muse what what is the, you know... The crux of the matter here. Yeah, what are we getting yeah, yeah. at? That's I, I really enjoy the Topic Tuesdays, guys. So thanks for those. We like anything that helps our car disease. Well, frankly, anything that makes it worse, which is why we're big fans of Haggerty Drivers Club. For just $45 a year, that's less than $4 a month, you'll get six issues of the fantastic Haggerty Magazine, roadside service with guaranteed flatbed towing, invitations to members-only events, valuable automotive discounts on things like tires and vehicle transport and racing school, and a whole lot more. It's the ultimate membership experience for people who love cars. Check out Haggerty Drivers Club for yourself and join the club at haggerty.com slash everydaydriver. We're back with a car debate for Ryan in Florida. But before we get too far into that, a couple little updates real quick. 
we have uh, the TV season is still continuing on Motor Trend. Mm-hmm. It's yes. it's various uh, yes. re- repeats at this point from this season and seasons past. So keep that in mind. That is still playing early, early Saturday mornings. And all of those episodes also are working their way to Amazon Prime and Vimeo if they aren't there already. By the way, once all of those are loaded, that will be 40 Four zero episodes of television. Can't believe that. I'm shaking my head which over is here. really, really cool. All of them available to you yeah. if you're international on Vimeo. And if you're UK or US, they're available on Amazon Prime. And uh, we're pretty proud of that. That's very cool. Also, coming this Thursday, happy Tuesday, by the way. Coming this Thursday is a YouTube video where you and I take out both our old sedans and compare and contrast them. <laughs> yeah. You've already yeah. seen the YouTube piece that was each of us kind of introducing our own car. Now, this is us doing what we do, the, the dual host thing, but in those crazy old sedans and talking about each other's, which is very cool, driving them in the snow. It's a fun piece. That's coming this Thursday, so be ready for that, too. All right, so we've got this debate here from Andrew in Florida who's asking for a used 500-horsepower-plus <laughs> car for Florida. Okay. He's in the market for a third car. Keep in mind, this is third car. Uh-huh. Powerful, hopefully reliable sports car in the twenty to $30,000 range, and he's ready to explore different types of fun cars. He's in the Melbourne, Florida which area, which lacks mountains, but there are no lack of tracks. That's great okay. to hear. All right, good, good. I've decided that Utah and Florida are opposites. Yes, they are. Complete opposites. They are the opposite sides of the coin from each other. You're absolutely right. Utah yeah. has mountains, no ocean, no humidity, <laughs> really few bugs, lots of snow. Yes, and great twisty, mountain roads, twisty roads, one racetrack and one racetrack. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And even the freeways aren't straight. <laughs> yeah. And Florida is the exact counterpoint to that reality. It's very funny. All right. He currently owns, Andrew currently owns a 240SX drift car for tinkering and tuning. Cool. He's daily driving a Genesis Coupe 3.8 liter. Plans to keep both for a while. He says both are manual and his last three cars have also been manual. He's okay. honestly a bit keen to have an auto. I did see that. That's interesting. Yeah, I see it. I see it. This new car would probably be a weekender, but maybe see occasional daily use and depending on what he wants to do, maybe some track use. And he says, I don't know if I want four doors. I don't need them. No dog, no kids. He says he and his fiance are high 20s in age, maybe kids down the road, but but none we'll of that see. matters right now. Yeah. I mean, he could do a two-door tiny car. He could do a four-door big car. That's not the point. The point here, <laughs> I want to reiterate, is the fact that he's looking for car number three, and he's looking for it to have at least 500 horsepower. I, so this is really you you broadening the... the you, if you, you do need have your a, fix, you need your fix. You do have I a tool for every job here, for sure. This is very interesting. He's also got a list of cars that he has had prior. He used to have, <clears throat> before the Genesis Coupe, Note the big numbers here. A 600 horsepower. That's at the wheels. BMW E30 335i. Not the M3. It was the E... Sorry, the E90 BMW. E90 600 wheel horsepower. Before that, he had an E39 540 that was also modded. So, uh, yeah. And he even had an FRS. So he's had a lot of varied cars. That's one of the interesting things about Andrew here. Here's the cars he already has on his radar. I have to run (laughs) through these real quick. He has a buddy... With a 2014 Evo 10, manual transmission, already modded to have 500 horsepower. Mm. Those you're keeping track, that mm. is 200 more than it comes from the factory. But because it's his buddies, wow, and he knows what's been done to it, he feels very confident that he would enjoy that car. He knows it. He knows it's well put together. It's well maintained. So that's one of the options. I'm sure Andrew's already driven it plenty, too. Yes, for sure. He's looking at the 2005 to 2009 911. That's the 997.1. I do want to step to the side here real quick and say 
That's not a 500-horsepower car. It is not. That is the only exception. But that is on here. He's saying that he can't get a PDK that early on in the model run, so he would be going manual as well. He loves the Evo 8.9, uh, but he's saying, hang on. Uh, most of those that are still around have had pretty hard lives. So should he do that? He feels like the, the Evo 10, even though he doesn't like it as much, is probably a safer bet. What about doing an M3? He had that E90 that he tuned within an inch of its life. What about starting with an M3, the E92, and supercharging that bad boy? Craziness. C6 Corvette. He wants to. He's thinking about that. He loves V8s. He thinks this would be interesting. He prefers the look. I thought that you would find this interesting, Paul. He prefers the look of the C5, but he cannot handle the interior, so he will go C6. That's so interesting. And he doesn't really like how the C7 looks. Which yeah, I think is a better looking car than the C6. Interesting. But to each his own here. That's pretty fascinating. I hope you've yeah. seen American Original. If you haven't already, I think you'd enjoy it. We have three more coming up quick, and then I want to unpack some of these. The Jaguar XF Supercharged, huge bargain for 550 horsepower, and he's finding them less than $20,000. I can't believe with that. With less than 50,000 miles. <laughs> he's saying, that seems pretty tempting, and I see where you're going there. What about, an, let's go even older M3. The E46... Properly maintained, maintenance done, turned into a high-horsepower monster. Yikes, that feels like that's money, though. It feels like that's going to take a lot of money mm-hmm. to keep running. And then, of course, he could do a crazily tuned e, uh, 135 or a 335 IS. Uh, that could have to be tuned as well. Wow, we've got a good range. He says he's an Evo fan. He will not be ever buying a Subi over an Evo. <laughs> Okay. It's the Pepsi Coke discussion. Fair enough. Fair enough. I have that ex- experience all the time in the Is Pepsi okay? Like, I don't care. I'm ordering a soda. I just, you know, whatever. But this is not okay in this regard. All right. So, looking at your list here, Andrew, the Corvette is the American car on here. I see that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're wanting inexpensive power. Yes. Which is what Corvettes are known for and have always been so good at. Absolutely. And I love that you're considering the C6 Corvette. I do like that. I I mean, I was thinking about C5, Z06, but it's only 400 horsepower. (laughs) They're great. They're great. But you're right. The interior's not super amazing. It's not super. Yeah. So C6. I like that it's on your list. Mm -hmm. But everything else is also very highly tuned. Well, Mm -hmm. I guess the... Jaguar XF, but still. Most uh, most all of it is. You're absolutely right. It's, yeah. it's very yeah, highly yeah. tuned. You've I agree. already got the I drift agree. car to tune and tinker and work on and that kind of thing. It's hard for me to imagine having two cars that you need to do that to and two cars to pour money to. And, oh, you know, I see it. I, I yeah. just, uh, if you can and you want to, blessings. Have at it. But otherwise, I think two cars to deal with, to wrench on, and meanwhile mm. your Genesis mm. Coupe is just going to be... You know, the car, and you keep driving it, fine. But I think you're going to want this third car to be reliable enough to, to count on it. Okay. I yeah. think you're right. you're just going to be so excited to have this third car, you're just going to want to go enjoy it mm-hmm. instead of wanting to do stuff to it. So the Corvette is on my list. Okay. First of all, though, I ask, why 500 horsepower? Why? <laughs> that's a great question. I because totally Florida? Agree. Is it because Florida or Oklahoma I, or Texas? I guess, yeah. If that's the answer... Perfectly valid, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. 500 horsepower, I mean, I think 350 for me is right in the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. 350 to 380 in a Cayman is just delicious, right in the sweet spot. An Smallish, Evo 10? Lightweight. Yeah. An Evo 10 in stock form is not a car that I think anyone can drive and be like, 
That's slow. <laughs> I mean, granted, granted, it bogs big time below it before it gets on turbo. But if your 500 horsepower one is still going to have that problem. But the thing is, once it gets on boost, that's not a car where you think, <sighs> 300 horsepower, I just, I'm bored. Is it just the ability? Is it a bragging rights number? Is it just the ability to leave somebody at a light? Mm-hmm. I mean, Florida has everything, the mm-hmm. cruising, everything about the car yeah. scene. Is it just you want that number to be able to say you've got 500 horsepower? Are you going to use? That horsepower. I'm 2009, just asking. first year Nissan GTR did not have 500 horsepower. Yeah, and everybody was nobody doing got out of that car and was like, "Yeah, I don't know, try again." Right, exactly. Yeah, they, nobody said, mm, "Try again, Nissan." Not fast enough. So, knowing about the lack of American muscle in your life, mm-hmm. and seeing the C6 Corvette and and loving that you've acknowledged it. Why not chase down a fifth-generation Camaro ZL1 with 580 horsepower, Mm. built from 2012 to 2015? But even better is the 2014 to 2015 fifth-generation Camaro Z28. Amazing. I thought of the exact same Are you serious? Yes. Absolutely. $32,000 to Mm $33,000 will get you a beautiful one. Mm -hmm. Now, this has... Little bit less horsepower because it's not supercharged. It's just the big block. It's the LS7 V8 with 510 horsepower. It's the same motor as the other car on my list, which is the C6 Z06. It's the same engine. It's the same engine. Yeah. Pick pick your body style now. Hmm? And nobody, honestly, you just don't see these Z28s. They they were selling above MSRP for like 80 grand when they first came out. You can now go buy one for 30. <laughs> I'm shocked, but I'm not shocked that you came to the Z28. Yeah. They're sort of the hidden, forgotten about, you want the muscle, the yeah. 500 horsepower, yeah. you want seven liters, mm-hmm. fury. I mean, I, Come I, on. I personally, I would go C6 Z06 because I really liked that car we drove for American Original. It is the same engine, a slightly lighter car. I hear you. I because hear you. that's kind of how I am. But the Z28 is the one you're just not going to see another one of. You're, you're going to see the other guy in the C6 yeah. Corvette before yeah. lunch. The other guy in the <laughs> yeah. Z28 doesn't exist. I just I think it'll be the discerning choice. Sure, people will see Camaro, but then that particular flavor is so different. Mm-hmm. The the wheels and tires were different. I, they came on those sticky Pirellis. Yes. The Trofeo R's. Where they had trouble with the tire not shifting on the rim when they hit the brakes really hard. Yeah. That was an actual known issue with the car. <laughs> Unbelievable. And they've dropped in price so far. You can it's crazy. pick a color. It's crazy. LS7 V8. The other choice I had for you was Pontiac GTO and do something custom because, mm, okay. again, Florida has every kind of car. You'll see everything yeah, everywhere yeah. at all times. I, I get that. There's probably Corvettes everywhere, as you said. There's probably Camaros everywhere. But a Pontiac GTO, mm. the mid-2000, okay. 04-06, with doing some custom stuff to it, the later years had 400 horsepower, so that's just a starting place. And it's a very understressed engine. Yeah, I mean, true. You true, true. put a blower on that. You do anything to that. True. I mean, Love it. customize that, make it clean and nice. You won't see as many of those, I don't think, even though I agree. I agree. I think all the used good GTOs actually exist in Florida, but I could be wrong. <laughs> anyway, I It'd think you'll see less one. of yourself. Yep. I agree with that. In okay. A sense. That's and, cool. And because you love the tuning and you're used to the customization, you could pull easy 500 horsepower out of that thing. Yeah, that's true. Automatics are cheaper. They're only eight grand for an automatic, 15 for a manual, wow. which leaves you gobs of money left over Lots to go tune to that thing and make Oof. it really yours. 
Those are my choices. I like it. I have one more that I want to add to this, and then I have a can you believe they're this expensive discussion. Oh, no. But another one you could add that is in the same vein, get yourself, since this is your car that actually might just be driven on roads, that does suggest to me you could go a little more toward luxury, a little nicer. You can get about a 2014 Cadillac CTS-V. Oh, good. That's a big boy. It is. Got some luxury feel about it. Enjoy that car. Cadillac CTSV is right in here. Those are like 90, 95 grand when they're brand new. And they aren't now. Now they're cheap. Yeah. Get them below 35. Get them below 30 for that for that matter. So Cadillac CTSV. And then I did go looking. Uh-oh. Because I think what you want, I think what you actually want, Andrew, like the car for you. At this point in your life, with what you're considering, is a Challenger. That's the sorry, the Charger. That's the four door Hellcat. Okay, I think is what you want. So I went looking. Oh no! The bottom of Hellcats is about thirty eight grand. Oh no! They're that low now. Thirty eight grand. Now the the Challengers run a little bit cheaper than the Chargers. So the Challenger big two door monster coupe is a little cheaper than the Chargers. But I think the perfect car for you is just out of your budget, and it is actually the big four door seven hundred and seven horsepower Hellcat Charger four door would be perfect because you'd have a totally different life experience and get more than enough power. Because why do five hundred when you can do seven? But exactly. it's about ten grand more than you have. So you're saying the age of cheap Hellcats is upon us already? I am saying if awesome. you don't currently have a deadbolt, go invest. Awesome. Great. If you've got more cars in the garage space, and we suspect you probably do, then you need to protect it with a custom car cover from Covercraft. We recommend the NOAA Custom Car Cover. They're each made to fit your car perfectly, and they resist moisture, but also breathe to eliminate condensation. It has four-layer protection for all weather conditions, and it protects your car from UV rays as well. The NOAA covers even have a soft inner layer, are made entirely in the USA, and come with a four-year warranty. In the worst winds we've seen, the NOAA cover stays put. Todd had one on the Lancer, and it kept the paint pristine in all conditions. I wore one out after nine years of daily use on my Audi Avant, and people always asked how I kept it so nice. Plus, you can defend your interior against kids and dogs and spills and any weekend adventure you might have in the mud and snow with custom seat covers from Covercraft. You can have the nicest car all winter long with help from our friends at Covercraft. And you can get 10% off your custom car cover and any Covercraft product by using the code every day right now at Covercraft.com. And it even ships for free. Follow the link from our sponsors page or go directly to Covercraft.com to keep your car looking its best. When we're searching for cars for you, local or nationwide, our searches start with Auto Tempest. Instead of searching each car shopping site separately, you can enter all your parameters into Auto Tempest one time and then search them all at once. With Auto Tempest, you enter your search one time and see local or nationwide results from Cars.com, TrueCar, eBay, and many more. Or you can jump to Craigslist, Auto Trader, or Car Gurus without entering anything new. And they just added a link to Facebook Marketplace too. Auto Tempest can help you find your next new or used car if there's a dozen in your neighborhood or two in the country. So if you're doing your drive homework, chasing your dream car, or just looking to feed the disease, head to autotempest.com. All the cars, one search. Excellent social media questions, Mike. Massive compliments to all of you for yeah, some good ones. posing some very well thought through excellent questions. There's a long one here from Andrew Pearson, who asks us about how we've talked about the aviation industry. Two episodes ago, oh, yeah, yeah. apparently we talked about incremental licensing and training requirements the further along we go. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
There's a similar parallel to this. The aviation industry talks heavily about the cost per hour of owning and operating an airplane. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I saw this a lot. My dad was a pilot for 30 years. General Aviation, he had a turbocharged 206 and then a Cessna 182. Cool. I went flying with him as much as I could. I I learned a ton. I mean, I know all the pilot jokes, but I, you know. I couldn't really. <laughs> but don't put you in a plane. I got it. Yeah, Actually, I know. All, I know all the jokes. Plane. I know all the jokes, but I can't I mean, do the flag. I, I so it. much, you know. A good landing is one where you can walk away from it. Yes. A great landing, you can use the airplane again. <laughs> I mean, I know them all. You're right. It's fair. All right. So, why doesn't the automotive industry talk about cost per mile when talking about the actual operating cost mm. of their cars? He's always calculated. Andrews calculated the cost per mile of his cars and trucks using the main variables of depreciation fuel, maintenance, tax, and insurance. He says after selling his 2011 BMW sedan, after three and a half years and 45,000 miles, he got about 41 cents to the mile. Okay. All, All right. said and done. Three All and a half right. years of ownership. He's always appreciated knowing how much he was spending on his dream ride, and he said, it helped me justify the purchase to use for his wife. Mm, interesting. Okay. All right. Okay. Now, he assumes the marketing arm of the auto industry would immediately torpedo any popularized discussion about the cost per mile since the depreciation of a new car is so depressing. You're right. (laughs) Yes, it is. And he says, why why don't we measure in cost per mile for cars? Mm -hmm. He says, is it because we all just... We don't want to face the facts about the true cost of our disease and the true cost of our enthusiasm for cars. <laughs> People that fly planes just know it's wickedly expensive. <laughs> exactly. Those of us with cars don't want to acknowledge it. Well, That's exactly, funny. Andrew. Yeah. You've heard of the $100 hamburger, right? Oh, I mean, yeah, this yeah. is the reason that pilots fly to the next airport over in the next county to mm-hmm. go have lunch to exercise the airplane. But it costs them about 100 bucks after all said and done. Yeah. Probably per hour, probably per minute, yeah, depending sure. on the airplane. <laughs> There's two parts to this, and I thought a long time about this. First of all, aviation measures time because usually an airplane isn't idling for very long. If it's a turboprop, a jet, or a piston, it's not idling for very long before it takes off or once it lands. Compare that to a car. Cars measure distance because gravity keeps them on the ground. So regardless of speed, cars spend lots of time barely moving, but their Mm -hmm, engines mm -hmm. are idling in traffic. If we measured our car's value by the amount of time the engine remained on, I think they would depreciate more quickly than our current measurement of age and mileage. Now, side note is there's many trucks and there's heavy equipment vehicles that do measure engine hours because the stress and loads on the mechanicals are far greater than normal usage. I get it. But regarding the cost of car enthusiasm, the Mm -hmm. people with passion in my opinion, passion for cars is greater than the number of pilots who love their plane and love to admire it. They want to be flying. Mm. There's far more car enthusiasts, I think, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the measurement is different. But here's part two. We need to establish the distance traveled in an airplane varies greatly. Because okay. your cruising speed is greater than your takeoff and your landing speed. Sure, sure. Your speeds vary. Yeah. And we've got to factor in tailwinds or headwinds or you're on the jet stream or something like that. That will affect your speed in an airplane. That's why sometimes you can land an hour early. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're and you'll right. Yeah, sit yeah. at the gate mm-hmm. because you caught the jet stream and you got that, a tailwind. And the guy can't find his flashlights to bring you right. in. He, he, he was going to find him an hour from now. But think yeah. of this, Andrew. Cars travel the exact same mileage where they're driving into the wind or against it or they're going mm-hmm. up or down hills. Yeah. It just affects their efficiency while doing so. Okay, so the airplane cost per hour, I think, is a human safety measurement. 
Mm. Because the airplane must work properly at all times <laughs> when you're moving. At no point in an airplane's life is it acceptable to fudge the maintenance numbers in an effort to lower the cost of ownership ratio mm. Mm. while simultaneously ensuring your plane still works properly. Yeah. On the other hand, if well, say you save your money and you don't do regular airplane maintenance and the engine quits while you're in the air. You're quite screwed. <laughs> this is the definition of a bad day. But if your car engine seizes up while you're driving and you roll to a stop by the side of the road because you didn't change the oil, theoretically, you're just as safe as while you are while, while you're moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, there's exceptions because you lose power to your controls like steering and brakes and it's harder to maneuver away from danger. I, I get it. But you're not suddenly falling out of the sky. Yes, yeah, it's true. Yes. This is why people can skip regular car maintenance or stretch it out and force their car to be more cost-effective per mile to own until something breaks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let me give you an example. I'm not doing a lot of maintenance to the Maserati. It's <laughs> running it's fine. it's wildly expensive to do so. <laughs> exactly. But what if I did? What if I decided to start doing preventative maintenance? Sure. Suddenly sure, sure. my cost of ownership equation is blown up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's no guarantee the car will keep running like it is now. Theoretically, preventative maintenance is the whole point to yes, make it yes, continue uh -huh, to run. For sure, for sure. But there's not a guarantee for airplanes either. I mean, that's why proper maintenance of any vehicle with an engine presents better odds it will work properly. Mm -hmm. But you have to do it per, for an airplane. You, there's, there's no yeah. – I mean, you have to get an FAA annual mm -hmm. for the airframe. You have to check for sc stress cracks and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, oil changes on the 185 were almost $200 just for yeah. the oil change. I mean, they're – more than that on some Porsches. But anyway, you get the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're expensive. So my safety remains the same in a car if my transmission works or if it doesn't. It's an interesting point. But your safety with some part of the airplane has to be measured in terms of, well, this has been running this long. We need to maintain it for my human safety. Mm -hmm, you can't mm -hmm. skimp on that. You can't get by. You can't just, well, I'm going to put off the oil changes and I'm just going to do it every two years and... You're still safe in your car if your engine quits. You understand? Yeah. Uh, I, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about it from a safety perspective. I, I totally see where you're going. Yeah. So you, you have to do that maintenance in an airplane. You can't just squeeze by just to lower your cost of ownership because now you're affecting your personal safety. I think that's excellent. I also think it's interesting because when, when I start to ponder like snowmobiles and ATVs and these other things that are typically like if you buy a used one, it says how many hours it was run. Right. Just like you do for planes. Right. And, you know, heavy lifting equipment, you know, the, the backhoes and that kind of sure. stuff are typically measured in run hours. Sure. But in most of those cases, they're not run casually. Mm -hmm. A car can be run casually. A car can be run just above idle. A car can sit in traffic. Right. This isn't how you use any of the things that are measured by hours. Your snowmobile is screaming all the time, mm -hmm. as is your ATV or your UTV or your backhoe or everything is screaming. Your airplane is screaming. Nothing. You're not in the air. Figuring out what's my high gear so I can run just above idle. That never happens. <laughs> I mean, you, you just lean it out once you're cruising for a piston engine. You just lean it out to get a you know better fuel usage, but that's really it. Yeah, and and of course to keep the engine a little bit cooler, but. You but know. it's not. But it's not like you know what I'm going to kick it up into high gear and I'm going to fly right now just above idle. This isn't happening. No. So it's very interesting the different in usage. I hadn't thought about it in those terms though of safety. That that's quite fascinating. Stig Photography on Instagram said, this is, this, is, this is one of those theory things. Will there be a manual Supra in 2020? Oh. 
<laughs> I'm going to say no, but I'm going to unpack this further. Okay, okay. Okay. Toyota has announced in the last few weeks that the four-cylinder is coming. Right. We are quite right. fascinated and very intrigued to drive the four-cylinder and to talk about it in terms of what does this do to the current 86, which I realize is aging and supposedly has a replacement coming, but right now it doesn't. Okay? So the four-cylinder is coming. Yeah. Now, you'll notice that the four-cylinder is coming right about a year after they launched the car. Okay. Okay, I'm going to sidestep to a second to Porsche. Porsche will launch a model. But they don't launch it in every flavor instantly. They wait a year, and they launch another flavor, and they wait a year, and they launch another flavor. This is the Supra. The Supra got launched last year with the launch edition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Straight six, horsepower number that seems kind of low, automatic. This year, the straight six magically has more horsepower, and <laughs> we're launching a four-cylinder. My point is, watch these one-year increments of the Supra, because I suspect Toyota's going to do something Every single year. So I do not think that that manual is coming in 2020, but I suspect one will come during the four or five year life cycle of the car. And it will be the new reason to talk about Supra. Every manufacturer does this, but I think Supra is being, Toyota is being very meticulous about it with the Supra. Love it. All right. Jerry Air asks if you should consider your dogs when getting a sports car. It's half joking, but I think 49% of you is joking. Mm-hmm. Said another way, if you get a more practical car, like a GT with a back seat, will you use it more? His partner's unlikely to join him on an enthusiast drive, but a mountain drive on the way to the trailhead with the dogs. Now we've got something. Mm -hmm, It's mm -hmm. an adventure all of a sudden. Is it softer, more compromised, but because it's a more usable car, make it better than a dedicated sports car? Mm. I think it's absolutely valid to consider your dogs. Absolutely. They're part of your life. They're part of the family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you want to go on those kinds of adventures, some people don't own dogs, and that's okay, too. So it really kind of comes down to your usage and what you want to get out. And it sounds like you'd rather have the adventure and bring people and dogs along but still have some fun, which is what you're going for. Mm -hmm. I love it. That reminds me of two things. First, I have a story specifically about my dog, and then I want to follow up with a question that came in from Brandomness that relates directly to what we're talking about here. My dog, I have, I have two dogs, all right? I have one that we got for my son. You've heard this story. Mm-hmm. That, that dog, Wasatch, is, uh, he's about two years old now, and he's a bit crazy, and he's still very puppy and very fun. So that's, that's that dog. But my older dog is Sierra, mm-hmm. and she's about 60 pounds. She's a pit bull mix. She's black, and at this point, she's almost 14. I can't believe that. She's an old girl. I can't believe that. When we got her, I was still in L.A., and I had my 300ZX. Yeah. She and I would go hiking. In the Angeles Crest Mountains, which means we took the two, Highway 2 and the 300ZX. I would sit her in the passenger seat. I will never forget this. She was young, but I would sit sit her in the passenger seat, and she would lean into corners. She would sit (laughs) like a dog sits. (laughs) Think about how a dog sits, and she would lean into corners. She'd look out the front glass and lean into corners. So my thinking is, take the dog. I think that sounds amazing. Totally. Uh, Brandonness has a question here. He says, we've been discussing child seats a lot. Indeed. On Instagram. We've been discussing child seats. He's an expectant father. Congratulations. This relates directly to him. He says, so hang on, hang on. Are there inherent safety risks with a front or rear-facing baby seat in a two-seat sports car, specifically a Cayman? Mm. He's saying, I'm assuming in this variable here that the airbag is shut off, as it should be if you have a two-seat car and and a child seat there. Proper latches are being used. 
So he's saying, is that really safe? And my answer to you is yes. Hmm. Yes. The manufacturers are required to put in child latches and all of those. And look, pick up a manual. Pick up a manual, an owner's manual for a sports car. Okay. okay. There will be a whole section in there. Miata, Cayman, whatever, for how to properly attach a child seat in that car. It might have a thing where it's like, we recommend you don't put one in the car, but it will give you very specific instructions. No car is perfectly safe for your child. Let's sure. just go there. Sure. Okay? But if you turn off that airbag and you put the seat in correctly, yes, ideally, you're as safe as you would be anywhere else. Okay, yes, there can be arguments about backseat is safer because of exposure. I, I get where you're going. But the point is, if you have a two-seat car, I've said it before, they cannot force you to buy a more than two-seat car because you decided to procreate. There is no such law, okay? (laughs) There isn't one in your state, I guarantee you. The officer could pull you over and be like, you ought to have them in the back seat. And you could say firmly, I don't have a back seat, okay? So if you've got it properly attached, and here's a side note, your local fire station generally will help you properly attach a kid seat in your car if you don't know how to do it. But if you have it done right, that kid will be as safe as you can make them. Mm. All right, Jay Mukiyama asks, if there is a performance car owner obligation to drive your car in a more spirited manner than regular car owners? (laughs) He was stuck behind a slow-driving left-lane camping Mustang 5.0 with performance exhaust, and he said it was really irritating. Certainly not advocating unsafe and reckless driving, nor are we, but what are our thoughts? If you own a hot car, you need to drive it as such. You need to drive it for the I'd like for you to. Look, you can't force anybody. You can't ask Mm -hmm. anybody. If they just enjoy the car and they like to putter around, all Corvette owners, who said that? What? (laughs) I'm just saying the car does need to be driven. I agree with you. But does it need to be driven at all times in every situation and you're just hair on fire every... That's a fair point. No, that's a very fair point. Can you? Maybe that person's just cruising to the store. Mm -hmm. Hopefully they're they're not on their phone, but they probably were. You know what I mean? Uh, Can you just take the car and use it as transportation? Yes. Is it weird? Yeah. That's why you (laughs) have more than one car, ideally. And you know, if you're gonna just hang out and putter around, take the whatever else that's not the fun hot sports car. That leads me to a question from Sean Clark, who asks what we think is the tipping point for owning more than one car. <laughs> you just honestly, you discover your budget could handle it. And you have a little bit more space. Here's really it's a low bar. I'd it like is. to have one of those, too. I'm not getting rid of my current thing, but hey, honey, two cars. <laughs> Sean, it is not when you get the raise and you make assistant vice president and you have more money. And it's really not mm. because you've heard us talk about cars as low as. $3,000. Well, I mean, we've talked about $1,500 cars. But we've talked about, yes, cheap, cheap, cheap things. Yes. I mean, we've talked about adding really inexpensive cars all the way adding you know, some very high-priced cars. Mm-hmm. It really is irrelevant what that car costs. It's about what your needs are and what your new life is gravitating towards. If you're you know, thinking, hey, I'd like some more fun, spirited driving, and maybe I'll get into tracking, but I can only afford a $5,000 you know, second Whatever, generation yeah. Miata. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's yeah. a second car. You're now a two car owner. Wonderful. That's fantastic. Yeah. It doesn't have to be the holy grail and the thing. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be that. I really discovered that with the Porsche 928. I had the Honda Accord. That was the do it all car. Mm-hmm. I was aching for something more fun, but also having this Accord just, all right, I'm just running 
errands. I'm, I need to go mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. mall or the grocery store. Sure, Just, sure, sure. I need food. I'm going to get food now. Yeah. The 928 was very much an event car, and my headspace reflected that. And I drove it as such. That didn't mean burnouts and speeding everywhere. It just meant I'm more aware. I'm well rested. Yeah. I'm I'm happy. I'm it, thinking straight. It was straight. a special occasion. I see it. It's yeah. an occasion car, and I'm driving it that way because mm-hmm. it just felt weird to kind of be sleepy, and it's early morning, and I'm not fully together, and I haven't had my coffee yet. And I'm taking the beast out. It just didn't feel right. <laughs> so it really honestly depends on who you are, but it doesn't yeah. have to be that I finally made it. I can buy the $60,000 car kind of thing. It doesn't have to be that at all. I think it is when you realize that your budget can handle it can b- mixed with the fact that you really do want tools for different jobs. That's really it. That's because really it. because yeah. you can have the hardcore track sports car. This is my drift car, and I daily drive it through traffic stop and go. You can do that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but wouldn't you really rather have something other than your crazy drift car to sit in traffic? Probably, <laughs> but you still want your drift car. I, I can see both happening for sure. What else you got? There are so many really good ones here. Uh, you know, uh, this could be a whole topic Tuesday, but Danny, I'm going to try to touch on this real quickly. Danny Bond on Facebook says we talk about chassis dynamics a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he doesn't know what that means. Okay. Okay. This this can be this could be lengthy. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> how much re- time? Seriously, you got? yeah. Welcome to the next hour. I'm gonna really try to, to simplify this. Honestly, we group a lot of things under that term. Yes. If we want to get yes. really technical, we have stripped some things away. But ultimately, when we're talking about the dynamics of a car, it is ultimately how it changes direction and how it takes inputs. Mm-hmm. A dually F three fifty has terrible chassis dynamics because it is heavy, and that's not its point. Mm-hmm. Yes, but it can tow your house right off its foundation. Yep. Okay, because that's what it's built for. The Phaeton that I have has surprisingly good dynamics for what it is, but it's a fifty two hundred pound car that is the size of your average cigarette boat. It's a monster. Okay. <laughs> All right, and so what I can do is I can actually change the suspension, make the suspension into sport mode. What that literally does is that one element, the suspension, the air suspension, gets stiffer, and so the car rolls less, and theoretically takes corners better. Cigarette boat that handles? Yeah, well, hopefully it's changing the dynamics of the car. Hmm. Now, this term can talk can actually deal with the construction. Think about the way my Lotus is built versus the way the Phaeton is built. Yep, mid engine. Light versus heavy, all of the so it can be the actual construction. It can be the way it was constructed. A big F three fifty is body on frame. For sure, your family SUV is what's called unibody, which is more like a car. That changes the dynamics. The way the suspension is set up, the sway bars, the way the, the steering is done. What's the what's the ratio of the steering rack? Oh my gosh, it goes on and on and on. Yeah. So. Yeah. All of these things, essentially the way the car responds to input, that's the dynamics we're talking about, and it relates to the chassis or the build or the skeleton of the car. That's the only way I know to do that simply, but it gets much more complex. The wonderful thing and mind-blowing thing about that is every car manufacturer is using all the same materials, Mm -hmm. steel, aluminum, plastics, leather, Wood, whatever that is, they're all using the same materials. Sure, yeah, yeah. And you can have a car that manifests itself in a Lotus Elise, mm-hmm. and you can have a heavy luxury something else, a Mercedes or something like that. Everything in between, and it really does come down to so many different variables, yeah. which is why spec racer classes have been invented mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to to minimize 
all the disruptions between all of those yeah. and really extract driver skill. Yeah. So all the engines in the same place, the suspension is the same, the tires, everything is all the same. That's what makes those series yeah. so interesting. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Because now it does come down to your own skill. That's right. All the and cars. And it's not, the right. well, I've got a better car because I paid more money and now I've got a Porsche and it's tuned better and whatever. Mm-hmm. Or, well, I've got a Ferrari and over here, you know, whatever that is. Because that's that's not apples to apples, like you You're were right. saying. You're right. That actually relates to David's question here. Uh, David is asking related to, to your question, Danny, about chassis dynamics. We go to David's question about how does something like a simple mod like sway bars is that a slippery slope? Am I ruining things? And his comment mm. is, um, it seems innocent enough until you find yourself looking the wrong way down the road. I'm asking for a friend. No, you're not, David. I'm sorry that happened. Uh, you put on a sway bar and you spun. Sway bars change, as the name suggests, they change how much your, look, this is a chassis thing, Danny, that changes how much your car sways or yeah. your yeah. body roll in a corner. If you do changes to your rear sway bar, it changes how much the back comes around. Mm-hmm. If you change yes. one sway bar and not the other, it's different than if you change them both. And most, both, most sway bars, when you buy them for your car, have multiple settings for how stiff you're going to make your car. This is back to, and back to you now, David, you're being your own R&D department. Mm. Yeah, I, I think yeah. you need to be real gradual. Start on the loosest setting of your new sway bar, which is probably going to be stiffer than what came from the factory. Work your way more aggressive and find out, as you already have, how this changes the dynamics of your car, how this changes how your car responds. Yes, it's a slippery slope because you are playing R&D. I always say dig into forums and find out what other people have done in their results so you can at least try to target the right direction. This could be the beginning of the end for you. You could mod right out of class. But but please be careful with just throwing something on and being like, this will be better. It's going to be different. It might not be better depending upon how you need it to drive. Well, speaking of that, Lamar Wilson is asking about tires. Specifically, mm. he's looking to replace the Pilot Super Sports on the E92 M3, should he stick with the Pilot Super Sports or get the Pilot Sport 4Ss? He's planning to get the Cup 2s when those were out because you're doing track days, about five to six track days a year. He hasn't had time to go in the last 18 months due to work and mm, family okay. obligations, right. which is fine. And he says this might be the case for a while. It's also his fair weather car. Wet grip isn't really a priority, but hey, I highly recommend those Michelin PS4s. They are an improvement for sure. They are, and especially if you're not doing as many track days, that really sets you up for a nice balance between just Mm -hmm. taking the car out and having a fun day with it, and the benefit is you do get some decent wet grip, but they are trackable. I've got those Mm -hmm. on the Cayman, and they've lasted so far two real hard track days, Mm -hmm. and they're still real good. Yeah, I mean, that's a heavy car. Let's be honest. But I think this will give you a nice balance, and it'll still bring that car to life. I say go for it and try it for sure. That'd be good. Any last questions for you? Uh, Instagram, Moat Jeremy says, what car will get the Stinger treatment in 40 years? Oh, good one. Initially, I didn't have an answer for this, but I came to one that I think is very odd. Okay, okay. Why... Does the 911 air-cooled have the stinger treatment? Or why do Icon 4x4s get done that way? It's because that is bringing the nicest, most modern version of something nobody makes anymore. Mm. That's the common thread of those things Mm -hmm. that are done very high-end. You can't get that anymore, so we're going to take that and make it as high-end as possible. I say Hellcats. 
Okay. Jump 40 years. Who's making a huge, big engine with a big old supercharger whine, rear-wheel drive, consuming car that makes 700-plus horsepower? Probably no one in 40 years. If it's going to be anybody, it's still, it will still be Dodge. But I bet you, back to your point, I bet you Dodge will be doing ones that are all electric. Here's a 3 million horsepower, it's all got, electric, whatever. you know, 2,500 horsepower yeah. because it's got a hybrid whatever, okay? I think the charge is terrible, but man, is this thing fast. Seriously, your two poles will be, you know, light speed, <laughs> but you're going to literally make warp trails down the, down the drag strip. Anyway, now mixing sci-fi. But, but honestly, I thought Hellcats. Yeah, you Hellcats, lost me there for a while. I know. It went to white noise for you. Yeah. But Hellcats are that thing where I think in 40 years, it's like, you remember these? Let's make it modern and cool. All right, I haven't ended on a watch question for a long time, so okay. Kirk Carson is asking. I'll take if, the headphones off and leave the room. Yeah, speaking of white noise for you, is the new Tog Heuer Atavia in green with a bronze case worth the money, or is it an overpriced throwback? Because, yes, it does have a vintage look. A watch is going to be with you for a long time. You can always change the band. Never look at the band. Mm, interesting point. You can always change that. They will wear out. You'll want something different. It is the easiest and cleanest way to freshen up a watch or make it special again. So look at the watch. Does it match your wardrobe and the things that you like to wear? Because in my opinion, watches are one of the few, if only, pieces of jewelry a man can wear. So will people like it? Will you like it? And it's for you. It is not for everybody else. High-end expensive watches are for your enjoyment mm. only. People notice them, and it strikes up conversations, but they are for you. Will you still like it in a decade, two decades? If the answer is yes, there it is. Guys, thank you so much for all your questions. I really, really appreciate it. We both do, of course. It's very cool. Thank you, guys. The Topic Tuesdays, the debates. You're getting creative on the debates. You're giving us more information. So always give us a, you know, your location, your information as far as your budget and what your needs are. It's and very cool, guys. Thank we'd you. love uh, anywhere on the planet that you are. So we really appreciate you listening and watching. And uh, so much to come for Season 7 in 2020. It's crazy. Lots going on. The calendar's filling up like crazy with a lot of great stuff. We're excited to share. If you get the chance, please rate and review this podcast. That does keep it in the top 10 automotive podcasts. Many people find it when you do. There was a question for how long would it take if you listened to all of them. There's 480 of them now. Mm-hmm. That's 480 hours. That's uh, like 20 days solid if oh. you listen to oh around the gosh. clock. Don't do that, by the way. But thanks for being <laughs> with us. Thanks for being with us. <laughs> Looking forward to next time, everybody. Cheers. <laughs>